The Old Testament reading today is Isaiah 49, 8 through 13. The New Testament reading is Revelation 7, 9 through 17. I do know that today is Mother's Day, and I do want to say to all the mothers of Emmaus, uh, you are tremendously valued and appreciated. I praise God for, for you and for all that you do. Uh, for your families, for your children in this church, it is a blessing to see you uh, labor very hard um, to the glory of God, for the good of your children, for the good of your families. Uh, we have a tradition, though, I think, that is to just kind of continue right along in uh, the study of God's Word, even on days like this that our culture recognizes. Uh, it is because we are here today to focus upon God and upon His Word, and I think it is important that God's uh, body hears a sermon uh, that applies to, to, to them uh, broadly. And so we are going to continue right along in our study of the book of Revelation, uh, but we are going to begin with a reading from Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 13. I want you to notice before I read it that this um, is a promise here made to Israel under the Old Testament. You have to go before the time of the coming of Christ. You've got to think Old Covenant, Old Testament, nation of Israel. They're living in the land uh, filled with sin oftentimes and, and, and sometimes in exile. Uh, Isaiah the prophet has a lot to say about coming judgment, but it's, the book is also filled with promises concerning good things to come yet in the future. The prophet does slay the people with uh, God's law, but he also binds up their wounds from time to time and offers them hope uh, looking forward to the coming of uh, the day of salvation. And that is what we have here, a promise to the nation of Israel concerning salvation, which will come by way of the Messiah in the future. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear they shall feed along the ways, and on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Cyrene, Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. I know this passage is rather difficult to understand as we just read it, um, just kind of out of context, but you'll see why it's an important passage to have in mind as we read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, which is the sermon text for today. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So far the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that the Lord would also bless the preaching of it. I think it is very important for us to remember the question that was asked at the end of Revelation chapter 6. It was asked by those upon whom the wrath of God came on that last day, as shown to us um, by the vision Uh, that John saw when the sixth of seven seals was broken, these who, the judgment of God came, asked a question. And the question that they asked is vitally important, for it is the question that the opening of the first six seals should cause us to ask. Uh, It is also not surprising that the question that was asked at the end of chapter 6 is the question that the two visions of Revelation chapter 7 answer. And what was the question that these asked? Uh, they asked this question, Who can stand? Who can stand? I want you to remember that when the sixth seal was broken, John saw the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free, hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They are so terrified by the wrath that is falling upon them uh, that they called upon the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and here it is. Who can stand? That is the question that they ask. Who can continue to live? Who can bear up under all that will happen on that last day when God's wrath is poured out in full? Who can stand? Who can bear up under the tribulation that will come upon the earth when the four horsemen, described with the breaking of the first four seals, come to do Uh, their bidding. Who can possibly bear up underneath it? That is the question that concludes everything that has been revealed to us when the first six seals uh, were broken. And certainly from from the perspective of the wicked, the answer is no one. That is how they see it, isn't it? Uh, It is the sense of Revelation 16 that those who ask the question, who can stand, are thinking in their minds and in their hearts, certainly no one Uh, can stand. This question is delivered as a kind of rhetorical one. When they are calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? What they mean is certainly no one can bear up under the weight of this judgment. So that is their earthly and unbelieving perspective on the matter. Uh, But the book of Revelation, thankfully, provides us with a different perspective on things. It gives to us God's perspective on that question. The two visions of chapter 7 answer the question, who can stand, and make it exceedingly clear that it is those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ who will indeed stand. Uh, This truth has already been communicated to us in the first vision of chapter 7 in verses 1 through 8. We considered uh, that text last week, didn't we? And I'm not going to take the time to repeat what was said then. But for now, simply remember that the 144,000 
that is the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of New Covenant Israel, with Christ um, uh, leading uh, that tribe, being the tribe of Judah, uh, represents all who believe upon Christ. That is who the 144,000 represent. All who believe upon Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, in, in every age. And remember that these are said to have been what? They're said to have been sealed by God. These belong to God. He owns them. He, by His Spirit, marks them as His own, protects and preserves them. In other words, He will make them to stand as they sojourn in this world. Notice that the question is answered again, but from a totally different vantage point here in the text that is before us this morning. Uh, It's another vantage point uh, on the same question. Who can stand? We'll see the answer in verse 9. After this, John looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing, brothers and sisters? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're standing. That was the question, who can stand? Well, do you want to know? Here is the answer. It is those who belong to God, who have faith in Christ Jesus, who will be made to stand, who will be able to bear up and pass through unharmed that judgment that will fall upon the unbelievers on that last day. I think it is important to recognize that this group is the same group described in the previous vision, but from another perspective. It's very important to recognize, and I think many miss this fact. This is the same group as described in the previous vision, but from a totally different perspective. These are who? These are the people of God. All who belong to God. All who have faith in Jesus, who is the Christ. It's the same group of people symbolized, but from a different vantage point. These are those who have faith in Christ. And they are the ones who are able to bear up under tribulation and to stand unharmed through the judgment. The vision of verses 1 through 8 portrays the people of God as a relatively small and earthly people numbered precisely by God and they are numbered for war. If you know your Old Testament scriptures, you know that oftentimes the people of God would be numbered but for one purpose, to go out to war, to fight. Right? So here, in the first vision, in verses 1 through 8, the people of God are portrayed as a relatively small, 144,000, I mean that's a large number, but relatively small when compared to the, the population of the earth. Right? Earthly people, where are they? In heaven or on earth? In the first vision, it is the people of God on earth who are portrayed. And they are numbered very precisely by God. God knows exactly who it is that belongs to Him And he has sealed them, why? So that they might bear up or stand up under the suffering, the tribulation that will mark this present evil age. That is the perspective given to us in the first vision. But the vision of verses 9 through 17 portrays the same group of people, that is, the people of God, but this time as an innumerable, multi-ethnic Heavenly people who stand victorious before the throne of God. These are not two different groups of people, one Jewish and the other Gentile, mind you, but rather the same group of people, God's people, 
first symbolized by the 144,000, and then next represented by the multi-ethnic multitude. It is one and the same group considered from two different perspectives. It is the same group of people symbolized in each vision. These are the people of God. They are all who have faith in Christ. Those are the ones symbolized here. The thing that distinguishes the first vision from the second is not the people symbolized, but the location of those people. Do you notice that? The 144,000 were sealed so that they might be preserved, stand up under tribulation on earth. But the multi-ethnic multitude are seen by John where? They're seen in the presence of God. They're seen in God's presence, being sheltered and shielded by Him, worshiping Him along with all of the angelic hosts. Not two different groups of people, but the same people considered from two different perspectives and in two different locations. First earthly, uh, then heavenly. It's amazing, I think, how things can be viewed from multiple vantage points. Uh, When we consider the church, I am here thinking of the, the universal church as it is on earth today, Uh, What do we see? I want you just to stop for a moment and and, and to think about the church, universal, uh, as it exists on the earth today. And what comes into mind except this, a relatively small, humble, often suffering people who are engaged in war. Is that not what you see when you envision the universal church spread throughout all the earth today? I mean, we are a relatively small people. We are not in the majority We are humble, oftentimes not wealthy, uh, not possessing positions of prestige and power within the world, but but, but a humble people, often suffering, uh, often facing persecution. We have forms of persecution in our country, but the church around the world suffers in greater ways than than we do. Um, That is what we think of. We think of a people who are engaged in a kind of war. Wouldn't you agree? What I mean by that is here we are living in a world, and and this is not our home, but we are sojourners. We are exiles who are wandering in a foreign land until we will receive uh, the fullness of our inheritance. We are are not at home here in this world, and, and, and and our beliefs and our practices do not match with the world around us, and so we have this constant kind of conflict. We We battle in this world. That is what we think of when we think of the church universal as she exists in the world uh, today. But what do we think of when we think of the church from a heavenly perspective? We should have this vision in mind, the vision of Revelation 7, 9 through 17. All of a sudden we have a much more glorious view of the church, don't we? We see that in the end there is going to be an innumerable multitude, a multitude that we cannot possibly count, like the stars of heaven, like the sand on the seashore, who surround God in glory and give praise to His name. It will be be a a glorious scene that we experience when the church uh, obtains the fullness of all that Christ has earned for her. And so we can consider the same people from two different perspectives. Uh, This is exactly what is going on here in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, It's one thing considered from two vantage points. And this really is nothing new in the book of Revelation. I want to point this out to you. I think it is very interesting to make this comparison. The same thing was done with Jesus himself earlier in the book of Revelation. One person, Jesus the Christ, 
but considered from two very different vantage points. I want you to look back at Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Revelation 5, 5. And I want you to remember the scene here. John saw a vision of the throne of God, and in God's right hand was a scroll sealed with seven seals. And the question was asked by an angel, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Revelation 5, 2. And what did John do except this? He began to weep when no one was found worthy to open that scroll. But then one of the elders said to John, and here is Revelation 5.5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop crying, John. Stop weeping. One has been found who is worthy to open this scroll. And who is he? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David. And what has this one done? He has conquered. He is victorious. And so John hears, does not see, but hears a description of the one who is worthy to open uh, the seals on this scroll. And, and the one described to him is this conquering king, this lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay. But then after this, John saw a vision of this Jesus who has been introduced to him verbally. But what he saw did not match the description of what he heard. What did he see? Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, not a lion of the tribe of Judah, but a lamb standing, not not as, as though he had conquered, but as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So do you see it here? Already this pattern has been established that one thing can be described in two ways which almost seem contradictory. Christ was here described, first of all, as this mighty lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who had conquered. That is what John heard with his ears. But when he looked, he saw something quite different. He saw a lamb slain. And Jesus, we know, is both the mighty, conquering, victorious King and our humble, despised, and rejected, suffering servant. The same thing is going on here in Revelation chapter 7. When John uh, uh, saw the first vision, I want you to notice that first he heard the number of the 144,000. He heard it only. 144 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here the church is described in very humble terms as a suffering people. They are sealed so that they might, like their lamb-like Savior, stand in the midst of suffering on earth. But then, in verse 9, here in this second vision of Revelation 7, John finally sees what these people really are. And when he saw them, they looked nothing like what he expected, given the description that he just heard. Instead of a 144,000 suffering but sealed servants on earth, he sees a great multitude that no one could possibly number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they are celebrating the victory of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, their great conquering king. What is the book of Revelation all about, by the way? Why is it given to us? Why does the church have it? 
Is it not this, that this book is given to Christians who are living in this world sojourning and oftentimes suffering in order to say to them things are not always as they appear? That here you are living in this world and you're struggling through trial and tribulation, but you must not have that as, uh, as the, the end of the story in your mind, but rather you have to remember that God is with you now and He will bring you to glory. That is the very thing that is communicated here in Revelation chapter 7 with the succession of these two visions. God is with you now. He knows who you are. You are numbered and you are sealed. He will keep you in the midst of the difficulty that you are facing in this world. That is one truth that we need to hear. Don't forget that as you sojourn. But also don't forget that the day will come where you will stand before God in glory. And you will stand before God, not just with your few fellow servants who are suffering with you in this world, but you will stand with a great innumerable multitude of people from every nation on earth giving praise to, to God. The language of a great multitude that no one could number should immediately remind us of the promise made to Abraham long, long ago. Genesis 15 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, God says to him. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. I still don't have a child. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And what did he say to Abram? He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? In Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And so what does John see here in this second vision of Revelation 7, except the offspring of Abraham? This innumerable, multi-ethnic, heavenly people standing victorious before the throne of God, are all of those Jews and Gentiles who have the faith of Abraham, who trust not in themselves, but in the Christ whom God has sent. And so who who will stand? That is the question. Who will stand? And the answer clearly given to us is that it is those who belong to God through faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, who will stand. And I want you to notice that these are able to stand Uh, before the throne, because God has made them to stand in Christ Jesus. They stand not uh, because of anything in themselves, but because God has made them to stand in Christ Jesus. In the previous vision, the 144,000 were said to be sealed by, by God. Did they seal themselves? Absolutely not, but God sealed them. God preserves His people on earth. Here in this vision, the people of God are said to be clothed in white robes. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Where did they get these clothes? 
They got them from God, from Christ Jesus. I want you to remember what was promised to the Christians in Sardis. Earlier when we considered the letters to the seven churches, to Sardis, Christ said, The one who conquers, I will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the saints in Laodicea, Christ said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, Revelation 3.18. So the white robes here clearly symbolize victory and they symbolize purity. You will not stand before God unless you are clothed in white. Uh, The trouble, of course, is that your garments, the ones that you naturally possess, your garments and mine, are terribly stained, aren't they? We do not have the proper garb to stand before God. We are woefully ill-suited to stand before the God of glory. And if we are to stand before God in righteousness, we must be clothed by Him. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our filthy rags must be removed and we must be clothed in white. Indeed, this is what God promised to do even long before the coming of the Christ. Even in the Old Testament, there was this promise that that God would clothe His people in white. He said in the days of Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And I think it is ironic that it is the crimson blood of Christ that purifies. Do you see that here in the text? Look at verse 13. One of the elders addressed John saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? The elder knew. I guess he wanted to involve John in things a little bit here. Who are these, John? You tell me. Do you know? But John simply says to him, sir, you know. And he said to John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. And how did they do it? How did they wind up with white robes, gleaming white robes? They have washed them and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If I were to make something white, I would never think to wash it in blood. But here, we must recognize that it is only the blood of Christ, His shed blood, that can purify us from our sins. For, of course, that is the thing really being talked about here. We must be washed in the blood of Christ. We must come before Christ and say, I acknowledge that if I stand in my own garb, in my natural garb, if I stand on my own, I will not be able to stand, but will surely fall. But if I come in you, trusting in you, Christ Jesus, I know that I will be purified and cleansed and able to stand on that last day. Each one in this innumerable multi-ethnic multitude multitude is clothed in white. Can, Can you picture it? Have you ever stood back from this text and tried to to just imagine what it was that John saw? It must have been tremendous. I mean, you have people from all over the world, from all kinds of cultures, uh, with different types of skin, different colored skin, right? There they are, and what are they all wearing but gleaming, brilliant white. And it is not only them, but all the heavenly hosts too. And we'll come to this in just a moment. They're praising God. I mean, it must have just been a tremendously glorious sight. What a different perspective on things than the one that we have today. Look around at our little tiny church, man. 
you guys should all be wearing white. I mean, I've begun to just wear white shirts on Sunday. I don't. That's because I don't want to put the effort into having to match anything. But, uh, uh, you, you know, it's just, from our earthly perspective, this is no insult to you at all, but, but we are very unimpressive, aren't we? We're very unimpressive. But here John, by the grace of God, was given a glimpse into the, the final state of things, and it is just a glorious, glorious sight And why are these able to stand? And why are they gleaming white? It is not because of them, but because of God who has clothed them. God has made them to stand. Sealing us now, He makes us to stand in our time on earth. But He will make us to stand in the end because of Christ and all that He has accomplished for us. These who are standing, this multi-ethnic multitude, they are waving palm branches. The palm branches symbolized victory. When a victorious king would ride through the city, the citizens would often wave palm branches in celebration. This was the custom in the days of Christ and even before it. Uh, You do remember how Jesus was greeted when he rode into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. But there the Jews were excited about Jesus. They thought, maybe this is our king, and they began to receive him in such a way. Hosanna, they cried out. They rejoiced at the coming of Christ. But here, the multi, this multitude took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Or excuse me, there they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, expressing his humility there. As you know, in the days of Christ, this earthly multitude was fickle. Not long after this, these same people, some of them at least, would be the ones who would deliver Christ over to be crucified. They were less than pure. But here in Revelation 7, John sees a picture of the redeemed multitude. And what do they say? They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who saved these? Who is their salvation owed to? Salvation belongs to God. Who sits on the throne. It is God through Christ who saves. God has made them to stand. Notice that these stand to give glory to God and to Christ for the victory that they have won. Verse 10, what did they do? They cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It is all about the glory of God. That is the point. It is all about the glory of God. He is worthy of all worship and He will receive worship for all eternity from His angelic hosts and from all of His redeemed. I don't know why, but this thought has been popping into my mind a lot lately. So maybe I should address it here. It is strange to me how in our culture we make church to be all about us, don't we? You know, I hear it so often, the way that people talk. Church is all about them. They come to be fed. They come to be uh, nurtured. They come to be encouraged. They come to get energized so that they might live how uh, how they need to live. And I will not deny it. There is an aspect of church coming together as the body of Christ that is for that purpose so that the saints might be strengthened. But it is first and foremost about who? It is first and foremost about God. 
It is right that you come to this place or to some other like-minded church on the Lord's Day and give worship to God because He has said that we ought to do it. And what are we doing except just having a small taste of how things will be for all eternity? We come to worship God. People talk this way that, well, I don't go to church because the golf course is my sanctuary. You know, I don't go to church because nature is my, my tabernacle. You know, Nature is church for me. That is where I go to get fed and, 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 and strengthened, you know. But there's just a fundamental flaw in their thinking from the very beginning. They have assumed that church is that thing for us. It is not. You must be here on the Lord's Day because God has commanded it. It is only right that you be here on the Lord's Day because God must be worshipped. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Him, then how could you not come not to feed yourself, not to be fed, but to give to God the worship that is owed and do His name. Do you see how everything centers upon Him in the eternal state? Well, it is that way now for the redeemed, those who have been sealed, who have been marked off as God's people. We come, not because we think we need it and because we're going to get something out of it, but we come because we are God's people. And what do God's people do except worship the living God as He has called us to worship Him? Notice lastly that the redeemed also stand to be sheltered, comforted, and supplied by God for all eternity. So it is all about the glory of God. You see it. Everything is centered upon the throne and there is Christ there with God on the throne and everything in all of creation, all of the redeemed, the elect angels and the elect from all humanity, from all over the earth, they're, they're pouring out praise to God. And I, and I imagine their praise not as being pathetic praise. We need to sing louder, brothers and sisters, on the Lord's Day, by the way. Sing louder so that what we hear is each other sing in preparation for, for, for this day when we will stand with that multi-ethnic multitude that is innumerable. Let, let's practice for that day. Let's learn to sing out boldly and not pathetically. I imagine this multi-ethnic multitude singing out. and They are, they are, they are besides themselves. I'm back to the last point now. I decided to make more of it than I, than I have already. I, I was watching a hockey game. Um, last week sometime. And the team scored. And it was a big goal at the end of the game, really crucial. That place went berserk. I mean, there was a dude standing behind the glass, right behind the goal. And I thought his head was going to pop off, you know. I mean, he is there and spits flying everywhere. He is pounding on the glass, just celebrating the victory that has been won. And, and there's the... the it was one of those moments, you know, there's the hockey player too on the other side of the glass and he's feeding into it. They're pounding at each other like, like a bunch of apes, you know. Uh, the place just went berserk, you know. It's amazing how we get into these stupid games. I mean, it's like this little rubber disc that men are skating around on ice and they're hitting each other and, you know, and we go crazy about that. And then we come to church and it's like, Where is it, folks? Honestly. Where, where is it? When do we ever get excited? I mean, we're not fanatics, you know. We're not the type to do cartwheels in the aisles. and I'm not promoting that at all. But, but where is the sense of, look at the victory that our God has won for us for all eternity and the only thing that matters, right? Where, where is the sense of, of excitement concerning this? Uh, 
these redeemed, I'm sure we will not have a problem with this when we do eventually stand before God in heaven. I mean, we'll, we'll be awakened most fully by then and we will sing with all of our hearts. But why, why not do that now in preparation for all eternity? It's about God. It's about the glory of God. We ought to have a sense of, of excitement about being able to come and to worship Him and to celebrate the victory that He has already won. Lastly, the redeemed also stand to be sheltered, comforted, and supplied by God for all eternity. And so we do benefit, don't we, from our God and all that He has done for us. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Listen to the language here. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. He will tabernacle over them in a way. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so it is true that all things are for the glory of God. We will indeed serve Him for all eternity, but I want you to see how good God is to His redeemed. And the same thing is true today as we live on this earth. It is all about the glory of God. But isn't God good to us? Aren't you blessed when you come to worship Him? Aren't you nurtured by Him and encouraged? Don't you feel the comfort of our God when you come before Him to worship Him and to serve Him? It will be that way for all eternity. He Himself will shelter us with His presence. I don't even know if I could put words to to that to explain it more. But can you imagine it? God will be all in all and He will shelter His people in a most full and immediate way. God Himself will be our dwelling place. The prophecy of Ezekiel 37 is behind this passage. I want you to listen to verse 25. Here is a promise concerning the coming Redeemer. My servant David shall be king over them. This is after the time of Uh, David, literally, but looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and using the imagery of David to describe him. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Remember that it's the tribe of Judah that's at the head of the twelve tribes of Israel as described in Revelation 7. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God Himself will be our sanctuary. He has tabernacled amongst us already in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He is with us now. The church is the temple of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But at the consummation, God will fill all. Everything will be temple. Everything will be temple. God will shelter us with His presence. So much more could be said about that, but we have to move on for the sake of time. No more hunger. Think of it. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more scorching heat. And of course, this is not really about just physical hunger or physical thirst or the scorching heat of the midday sun. But this is a way of describing the fact that there will be no more tribulation for the people of God. 
Uh, that is what God promised to Israel in the Isaiah 49 passage that we read at the beginning of this sermon. Israel was told this, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Isaiah 49.10 I want you to notice very carefully here how the promise made to ethnic Israel in Isaiah 49 is applied not to ethnic Israel, but to the multi-ethnic multitude washed pure in Christ's blood. That is what is being said here. What was promised in Isaiah 49 to ethnic Israel will be accomplished and will be applied not just to the Jew only, but to Jew and Gentile, all who have the faith of Abraham, all who have been washed pure in Christ's blood. It is this group, all who have the Lamb for their shepherd, who will be led to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In this world, life begins and ends with tears. But God will bring eternal comfort to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. I have a few questions for you by way of application. Are you properly clothed? Are you properly clothed to stand before God on that last day? The way to be properly clothed is faith in Jesus Christ. Saying to Him, take my garments, they will not do, and give me yours, please. Because I know if I am not clothed by you, I will not stand. There's a parable in Matthew 22, 1-19 that I will not read here. You can read it on your own time, but it's a description of the it's a parable about a wedding feast and how those invited at first would not come. And then finally, invitations were sent out to the highways and the byways. Some came. But when the wedding actually began, there was somebody there who had no wedding garment on. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I want for, I want for you to be properly clothed on that last day. To be improperly clothed when the Lord returns. To not be prepared to partake of the wedding feast is a tragedy. It means that you will be cast out into outer darkness in that place where there is nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. May you be properly clothed. And I wonder also, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you grateful to God, to Christ, now as you look forward to your heavenly reward? Here the book of Revelation shows us what we are to expect. It gives us a small glimpse of the heavenly reward. We are to look at that and we are to be grateful. We are to rejoice in it. We are to give praise to our God in the here and now for all that He has accomplished for us. We do not have to wait till then, but we can now and today begin to understand the tremendous value and infinite worth of all that Christ has earned for us and praise Him now and come with hearts filled with thanksgiving. Also, will you persevere if you belong to Christ, I know that you will persevere. I know that that is a truth. But I'm here asking a different question. Will you persevere? I know that God will preserve you, yes. But will you persevere? We must press on, brothers and sisters, to persevere until the end. And the book of Revelation helps us with that. Because it helps to set our minds not on the things of this world, but on the things of the world to come. 
It helps us to see how things really are from God's vantage point so that we might press on to the goal that Christ has set before us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful book. We thank you for the visions that are here, the symbolism contained within, uh, but how rich they are, Lord, and how they make us long for that day where we will stand with that multi-ethnic multitude that is innumerable to give you praise. Lord, how we long to have the fullness of all that Christ has earned for us. We know that you have washed us of our sins already. You have made us holy. You have made us pure. But we look forward to that day where we will stand before you at the consummation clothed in white, never to struggle again with sin. Lord, we do say, come quickly. But we pray also that while you tarry, that you will make us faithful in this world. Give us especially a mind to share the great good news of, of Jesus Christ with all who are around us. Lord, help us to be faithful to take this good news to all kinds of different people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Lord, we know that is your objective. That is your, your goal. That is what you said you would accomplish, that men and women from all the earth would stand before you in glory. So make us faithful servants, we pray. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.